one of the best compliments that we got was when the Atlanta Journal Constitution called us strangely relevant. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could get to the compliment someday. <laughs> and and not having been relevant for so long, the Republicans see the writing on the wall. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Ashley Robinson, someone who's been working hard in Georgia politics and beyond for more than a decade. She's currently the Deputy State Director for America Votes Georgia and Principal at the Blue Institute. She previously worked for Stacey Abrams at the Georgia House Democratic Caucus and was political director for Stacey's governor's campaign. Ashley has a very good sense of what made a difference in moving Georgia in the Democratic direction. We had a good conversation about what she's learned from being in the center of Georgia politics. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Ashley Robinson of the Blue Institute and America Votes Georgia. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Ashley, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure thing. My name is Ashley Robinson. I um, serve as the a deputy state director for America Votes Georgia. That's my full-time job. My passion is around diversity in um, electoral and progressive spaces. I actually got started in this work back in 2009, actually, when I worked on my first mayoral race. Uh, I was a regional field director for, for that campaign. And uh, following that, uh, ran a number of different campaigns. And then I had the pleasure of meeting uh, leader Stacey Abrams. She was actually the campaign manager for that race. After that time, I worked on a number of different projects with her and went back to my full-time work. And then uh, when she became minority leader in Georgia, December of 2010, she asked if I would become her chief of staff. And so I served as um, Stacey Abrams' chief of staff from January 2011 through the end of our 2017 legislative session. And then moved on to become um, the political director on the coordinated side for her campaign, where we did a lot of amazing work. And um, now um, I'm in the role that I'm currently in and, and also serve as principal of Blue Institute. We're training a program for young people of color to help pipeline them into progressive and electoral spaces in the South and Southwest. Well, I am looking forward to hearing more about all of those things. Tell me, though, first, where did you grow up and what kind of family? Yeah, um, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, specifically in Fairfield. I was actually born in Detroit, um, but raised in the South. Lived on Avenue I in Birmingham 
my southern roots run deep because I, I call Birmingham and Atlanta home. Um, I would kind of move from, you know, spending summers in Atlanta. Then we moved over to Atlanta, lived on the west side. I went to uh, elementary school in the city and would always come back for summers. My dad uh, is a mechanic. And my mom worked in the school system. Um, and so my dad took a job in Atlanta, which is why we moved, and then took another job in Evansville, Indiana, which is on the southern tip of Indiana, right next to Henderson, Kentucky. And so that's where I spent my middle and high school years, but would always come back down south to, to visit family and to spend summers. And any break that I got, I was back <laughs> in the south. And you went off to Spelman, right? I did, yes. Uh, so when it was time for, for me to, to pick at my schools, I picked all HBCUs. Um, got accepted to all of the uh, the schools that I selected. Um, I, I wanted to go to Howard. I think I chose Xavier and then Spelman. And uh, Spelman was literally, the as I was filling out my paper, my housing paperwork at, at Howard, uh, I got my letter from Spelman. So no offense to the Bisons. I love y'all. <laughs> but my heart was in Atlanta to go back down south where I where my community was, where I, I knew I knew the area and where I had family, too. Um and I visited the school and, um, you know, just kind of being around in the Atlanta area, that's that's where I wanted to be. So that's where I got accepted and was happy to spend those uh, really formative years there. What did you study? How was that experience for you? Oh, it was beautiful. You know, it's interesting when you are in high school and you are, you know, the maybe one of a handful of Black kids who, you know, are in the AP classes and you're in the advanced, you know, math and social studies and all of those things. And then you go into an institution where everyone is advanced and everyone cares about their community and everyone, um, you know, has a, uh, a different trajectory and, and to be able to share that uh, level of sisterhood amongst other young women who are doing such amazing things, who had done such amazing things and matriculating through that process to c- continue to be of service to our community um, was amazing to be around. And it's very much like a family at Spelman. You're in the confines of uh, of, of those walls, um, of the gates of, of Spelman, and you, and you build this deep sense of family with your professors and with your um, with your sisters um, that are in your class and in other classes. And you know, going out into the world, I think, is a little bit different because they they do a really good job of keeping you close of, of holding you. It, I mean, it's, it's like leaving your family when you, when you graduate out of Spelman. So if I could go back, I certainly would. I, it was probably some of the, the best years of my life spent, spent in school. Any regrets about not going to a, a university that isn't an HBCU? I mean, like my wife went to an all women's college and it's a sort of a similar thing because you get the advantage of uh, not having to deal with men. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that worked out well. Yeah. The diversity of Black people is, I think, what was so, it further, I think, develops you. And Spelman, I think, is to its credit, does a great job of of not only like keeping you within the, the confines of, of the school, right? Like it's very familial. You You feel safe there. You feel comfortable there. But there's so many partnerships that the school has. There's so many programs that uh, expands your your level of understanding and perspective uh, that they do a really good job of 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 really like moving you in, in, into those spaces. 
And I mean, you're you're in the AUC consortium too, so you are, you know, you're always connected to your Morehouse brothers or your or the students that are at Clark Atlanta University, or or even when Morris Brown was going through its stuff, like folks were still on campus there and with the theology school, so um, and even Morehouse School of Medicine. So you are surrounded by a diversity of of industry, and also because Black people aren't monolithic, so you've got Black folks coming from everywhere who uh, have interests in everything, and although they aren't from a variety of ethnicities, I would say, but they have a diversity of thought, uh, a diversity of perspective, and particularly even from the the region they come from, whether they're from somewhere else in the United States or whether they're from somewhere else in the in the world, they bring such a unique perspective to how you show up in the world and how you should think about what your future looks like and, and being of service to people. And so they've done a really good job, I'll say, of making sure that we are introduced to different industries. And, you know, of course, with those in different industries comes different people. And I think that there is value in being able to to study that together as a people and as women of color, as Black women together that you probably wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. So um, sure, like after school, there's a number of, of my friends who who went off to, to grad school and were either part of a PWI or, you know, went into another industry. But I think Spelman did an amazing job of of developing you in, in thinking about what your what your role is in the world and not only as a black woman, but as someone of service, as someone who is a leader, as someone who um, puts community first. And I, you know, attribute a number of those things that I, that I believe now that are part of my value system, not only to the way that my family raised me and how I was reared, but in, um, in, in those formative years at Spelman College. That sounds very enviable. And it's very similar to sort of testimony that other people who've gone through similar experiences have, have, have mentioned. The mayoral campaign that you mentioned was Borders, right? It was. And the woman who you said was the campaign manager, uh, Stacey Abrams, what was she like back then? She's oh, certainly man. become a, a <laughs> national right. figure now of, of great repute, but what were your initial impressions? Man, she was smart and a visionary even back then. And so that was 2009. So she was in like her mid to late 30s then. And I think about me in my mid thirties. <laughs> I wasn't much in my mid thirties. <laughs> Took but, me a while, <laughs> right? But she was also a state representative still during that time. So managing her own, being a state rep then, and, and all of the the networks that she has developed, and and all of the success I think that she had amassed at such a young age, I mean, from coming through um, the city for being the deputy city attorney, from working with Maynard Jackson in his office, and from all the work that she'd done at Spelman. Um, it was cool to, to see a young woman develop a team. And I think this is the one thing that I, I tell people all the time, which is why I, I'm just so in awe of, of Stacy, <laughs> of Leader Abrams. Um, because she understood the value of perspective and diverse thought. And that came from a number of different people who she put in leadership of that campaign. There were Indian Americans, Asian Americans who kind of helped shepherd some of the work that was being done. We had our, our white folks that were part of the campaign, um, a number of African American leaders it was a very diverse group of people who came together to do some really great work. Leader Abrams had a 
I think, a strategy for how she wanted to get it done. She was very much a person that put young people first, too. She believed in young people, which I think is because she was young, but also knows about potential. So when she sees potential, she knows how to to pull the, the rest of the stuff out of you, how to how to tease that, how to uh, to to build your character and your leadership um, from the work that you that you did within the campaign. So she was certainly a woman beyond her years then, but still had a, a youthful spirit about herself and 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 vision. I, I definitely remember that about about Leader Abrams back then. What were you like back then? Were you ready to make an impact? What was going through your head as you had that first job? So I was 23 and I had spent about a couple of years working as a director of business development um, for a magazine publishing firm. So that was my first job out of college. I graduated in 2008 when the recession hit. My boss, whose fiance was working as legal counsel for uh, Lisa Borders' campaign, well, they were looking for some field staff and, and looking for folks to kind of help, you know, rally support and, and, and build up name recognition in different parts of the city. And so she said, you know, well, if you're doing everything that you're doing here, I mean, I was securing ads. I was helping place some of the articles. I was doing surveys on diversity and inclusion. As a very young person, I felt like I was doing a, a lot of great work, <laughs> but still didn't really understand what my purpose was. And I come from a I mean, I would say a, a normal family, right? Like we weren't um, deeply civically engaged, but I, my mom and dad always voted. We wouldn't have like political conversations around the kitchen table, but very much cared about the community. And my mother was was the type that, you know, anyone from around the, the neighborhood could come to our house and, and hang out and she would make sure that you're fed and and make sure that you felt in a, that you were in a safe, loving, um, familial space together. When my boss told me that, you know, he he needed to furlough me for a few months um, because of the recession, um, she said, well, I think you should, you know, apply for for this job with um, with the Borders campaign. And I had never worked in politics. I had never even volunteered on a campaign um, before. So I said, well, sure, I, I'll, I'll do that. I interviewed for the position. The position was for a regional field director. And so we uh, the campaign split the city up into three quadrants. And this was before the Beltline. And so I was responsible for, at least was interviewing for the West Side position to be a regional field director for Atlanta West Side. And so I interviewed, I got the position. I think spending so much time on the West Side of the city helped <laughs> because um, my family lived on Shirley Street. And if you're uh, an Atlanta native, you know exactly where that is off of Beecher Street. And um, also, um, you know, just having gone to Spelman and, and doing some of the work that I did while I was in college. And um, and I got the position. And so that was in the summer of 2009 at the campaign at that juncture. Stacey, I think, had just become the campaign manager. They had a shift in campaign management. Lisa had gotten out of the race. Her parents fell ill and they have deep civil rights roots in the city. But from what I understand, like a lot of that camp, that um, that support that she had amassed from like old Black Atlanta, from um, some of the civil rights leaders who were alive then and who were um, who had large voices and, and carried a lot of influence in the city. Um, she had gotten a lot of that support. But when she got out of the race, Kasim Reed had amassed that that level of support. And so it was just difficult for her to get that support back. 
although she was um, considered, you know, a top contender for the position and was the city council president uh, of the city and president of the Grady Foundation. So an excellent candidate, um, fantastic credentials. So that was the campaign. And so when I did that, you know, I really thought about my role as just connecting the community and every campaign is indicative of how you are going to govern. My role and the way that I approached it is I need to be sure that whatever gap we can fill in this community, that we are able to do it through the campaign. Or, you know, we, we can share, you know, how whatever policy platforms that, that Lisa had were going to help fill those necessary gaps and tell the why of the story and why folks should invest in, in the campaign and be supportive of her. Because folks don't follow a campaign or the candidate. They follow the campaign for themselves because there's something that you said that resonated with them wholeheartedly. So it's a very selfish reason why people are a part of campaigns and, and why they support the candidates that they do. And so I tried to make sure that, that was always embedded in the community work that I was doing. So having constant uh, one-on-ones with community leaders, figuring out unique ways to tap into the community, to increase Lisa's, to increase the, the work that she was doing in the community, you know, whether it was around education or whether we were doing stuff around um, economic development, we were listening to the community itself. So that's how I approached it, not knowing really what the heck I was doing. <laughs> well, it sounds like you made a pretty good impression if you go on to you know, ultimately be chief of staff and caucus director for Stacy, right? Yes, yes, yes. So after that, Leader Abrams had done a, a lot of work um, with the party, but particularly around voting rights. Uh, there was a voting rights campaign that we did in DeKalb County. I had also worked on a number of different campaigns, um, a secretary of state campaign and, and some other things. I had gone to Texas to do some training around uh, learning a little bit more about the work, the work that I was doing and came back and helped support it, some state legislative seats and some candidates who were looking to get in the state house and um, had continued to work alongside Leader Abrams for, I would say, for the next year. And I guess I impressed her enough. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the work that we needed to do as she became minority leader and moving into the caucus is how do we connect the work from the caucus to the people? Because that's essentially what we needed to do. There was a void in that connection uh, with the caucus. I mean, we were in the minority, obviously. We hadn't had leadership um, in a number of years uh, at the state house, but we needed to make sure that folks knew that Democrats were at the state house and that they were actually working on their behalf. And so when she asked if I would become her chief of staff, I was ecstatic. Now, I didn't know what that meant at the time, okay? <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> but it was going to be a lot of work. I was also very young. Leader Abrams chose someone I think that was a little younger too, because you don't have any political favors. You just know that you care about people and that you will try anything that you can to do the work that you need to do on behalf of the, the people of the state of Georgia. So, so I think that was a blessing. And, I, and I, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe that there was a reason why, you know, I was placed in Leader Abrams' life and she was definitely placed in mine to be able to help me grow in that way. But there is a there is a piece of it where we needed to tie the community back to the legislative work that was happening because that was the stuff that was directly affecting people. Um, so we're talking about Medicaid expansion. We're talking about tax hikes on the middle class. We're talking about transportation and, and not funding QBE and education and all of those things. So 
I think that's, you know, one reason why, why she, why she decided to, to have me on our team. I'm grateful that she did. Well, it sounds like an amazing political education to be in that position for that length of time to see, you know, what the majority is trying to do to try to get something done from your side, to learn the players, to understand better how the state is governed, right? That's right. Yeah. What are your observations about, I don't know, the Republican majority and why they did what they did? And because there's such a gulf now in this country between the parties. Mm -hmm. It's gigantic when you have a state where one party, to the lengths that they're willing to go to try to maintain power, there can't be too much love lost, yet they're also fellow citizens, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say working in the legislature for those number of years, obviously you have the folks within the Republican caucus who are the more extreme, (laughs) Um, but then you have members of the Republican Party and their caucus and even the governor who were, I think, were more pragmatic in their approach because they knew one of the the best compliments that we got was when the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is Atlanta's paper, but some would consider it like the state's paper, right? Um, called us strangely relevant. Um, <laughs> they called us strangely I, I relevant. Wish I could get that compliment someday. <laughs> and and not having been relevant for so long, the Republicans see the writing on the wall. And so at any juncture where they could stop, I mean we had redistricting the year Stacey became leader. And they drew us out of four seats. What was interesting in the way that Leader Abrams kind of developed the staff structure is that we weren't legislative staff. The minority office had such a small budget. We maybe had $25,000 as a caucus structure in its entirety. And so as you can imagine, you can't do much with that amount of money. So what uh, what Leader Abrams did is, you know, not only did we develop a PAC, but were able to pay the staff through the party and move the staff in as legislative aides. What it developed was a unique situation where we were legislative staff during the the legislative season, and then we were electoral staff um, during the off season when, when it was time to pick up those house seats. And so we were able to vacillate between the two, which having that institutional knowledge was great. Our state from back then, and, I, and Leader Abrams had seen the writing on the wall herself because our numbers were changing. I mean, we were becoming a way more diverse state and having getting getting drawn out of those four seats, we knew that they were going to to try to, you know, on the electoral side, make sure that they had as many legislative seats as, as possible. And so we were able in 2012 to stop the Republican supermajority. So we held ourselves at 60 members then, although we we weren't able to move any big pieces of legislation and um, we couldn't move anything through, obviously, but it is always our job in the minority to lose well, which is what Leader Abrams would always say. And I think from back then, we see like now there are these small chips at making sure that we are preventing access to, to fair and equitable access to voting for people of color, um, where you know that you have such a diverse group of people who are now counted in your state that you if you still own the legislature, but we're able to take back the, we have the two Senate seats. We were able to turn the state light blue that they still hold uh, where all of the, the power is, which is at the state house. And so they know that. And I think they, they relish in that. And, 
you know, from the amount of money that they spent on the on the legislative side, I think it was close to 10 million, probably nine, nine point three to be exact. They invested heavily in in those state house races, but knowing that that's where they would be able to make those wins, even if we were able to do a lot of great work um, on the federal side within the state. You were young and overseeing staff. Were some of the staff older than you? Yes, they were. (laughs) (laughs) Which is always kind of an interesting situation, right? When you're in charge like that of people, I think you start to develop theories about management and leadership. What were you thinking? How were you developing in that leadership story of yourself? Sure. The, The first thing I think you learn, and particularly as the chief of staff, is that you are managing, you're overseeing the caucus, the operations of the office. And so even though your legislative director has purview over their work, your communications director has purview over their work, we had a caucus um, caucus services director who directly serviced our 60 plus members. Um, and so they had purview over their work. And what you start to realize is even if you are younger, that you still have to build trust. And what I think a lot of folks in politics know who get into this work is you are thrust into leadership positions at a very young age. And so you almost have to sink or swim if you're doing that work. Um, what I started to, to realize, and, and I use Leader Abrams as a mentor, <laughs> um, of Good course, <laughs> yes, uh, to, to help to build that savvy of, of how do you build that trust and also maintain the level of um, professionalism and the expectation of the, of the work that you're doing for your for your members. And so I think, you know, just taking all of the things that I had learned, I mean, I was even though I was the regional field director at that time, like I was managing field teams. I was I'd also um, in my previous work, I was. Um, I was connected to a number of principals at one time. So age didn't necessarily intimidate me. And it may have been that way on the other side, on the flip side of that for other folks. But you have to show up in a room sometimes, (laughs) even if you don't know it, (laughs) as if you do. Um, But it it takes an immense amount of studying uh, of of the work that you're doing. So I spent a lot of time reading and uh, developing, you know, an understanding of what were the house rules. Um, how did we need to coalesce as a team? Like we had constant meetings all the time. And, and I use it as an opportunity to learn um, and to learn different positions and to learn folks and, and the way that they, that they operated. And so I had to have one-on-ones with the team. And I think I did a decent job of it, considering that if there was anything that was awry in the office, like the team would come to me and, and they, would, they would share with me what some of the issues were. And we would figure those things out together. What folks also need to know is that they have a teammate. And so outside of you being a leader, that you are as much of a part of the team and that you wouldn't ask someone to take the trash out if you wouldn't do it yourself. You wouldn't ask someone to make a call into the district if you wouldn't you know, have them call Miss So-and-so who has an issue with her water bill and doesn't know not to call the state because we are accessible, but to, you know, to give them the number to the city. So I, I think it's, it's, it's really building that trust and and letting them know that you are also learning, but you're you're learning with them too. Of course, you had the endorsement of the person who hired you for that role. Sure. Was she good at having your back? Yeah, yeah, she was. Uh, she was. Uh, we didn't have a lot of um, a, a lot of issues as as a team. Um, we worked very well together, and I think what was great about that team too is that we built a, a diverse team within our our caucus. The Republicans would say that we were the United Colors of Benetton when we would walk around the Capitol. <laughs> mm. and, and and they weren't. 
And they weren't. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. You said that you went on to be political director of her governor's campaign, right? And mm-hmm. the coordinated campaign. Sure. Yeah. That's kind of a legendary race now. Tell me about your experience there. Oh, man. The 2018 um, governor's race, which was very close. Yes, was very, very close. Out of all of the years that I've known Leader Abrams, it was really an amalgamation of all of the values that she deeply believed in in one place, which was the campaign. It was intergenerational. It was diverse. It was uh, multifaceted in the way that we thought about the work, particularly within the, the political department. I I think about political departments as the heart of, or the soul of the campaign. And so you've got folks who are, you know, I love field or communications is where it's at or fundraising can't do anything without us raising the money. And that's sure. But the people come from, from the political um, department, the, the, the relationships are derived there. Endorsements come from there. That's where you see a, a lot of the the overlap of field and communications because you have to be able to, to breathe life into um, all of those different departments and, and help then, you know, move those um, those unique relationships that you've developed into, okay, well, this is a, a fundraising opportunity, or this is something where we can uplift and field, or, you know, we're going to host an, an event here. So it was great. I think from all of the work that, that Leader Abrams had done, Lauren Wargo after coming in, I think I met Lauren, I can't remember if it was 2012 or 2014, but having a bulldog like Lauren, who is so very kind, although is very forceful in the way that she needs the work to be done, because this is work that affects the people directly. And so we have to be able to understand that the work is bigger than, than we are. And so that campaign was... Um, it was almost a whirlwind. I mean, it, it, was, it was so magical to be a part of, uh, of an operation where you were able to value all different parts of the, of the state and include everyone uh, within that campaign. It was truly a people power campaign. I would say I learned, I think the true value of, of why relationships are so important. The challenge and the blessing of the Democratic Party is that diversity that you're talking about, that multifaceted coalition that we are. What did you learn in that role about how you successfully pull the threads together that are so varied? That everyone has a seat at the table, no matter their level of expertise, someone can assist. It's good to see it in recent years have understood the value of, um, of diversity of thought that there can be someone managing your campaign or who is supporting your bid that is not um, a white person or or someone who has a very different level of, of experience or expertise, but knows the constituency that you're attempt, att- whose vote you are attempting to to and support you're attempting to get. So that level of I think diversity, and particularly in the South, there isn't a lot of democratic attention in the South, right? And so you started to see this groundswell of, we have the people that are here. We have a, a, a large electorate of people of color, not that who aren't registered. We always can register more people, but there's an untapped universe of people here that really haven't been given a reason to come out to vote, um, haven't really been engaged in a way 
that that really spoke to them, that that pulled at their heartstrings and gave them something to vote for. Uh, Leader Abrams playbook that she released um, that we actually had all of the numbers that we needed. This is really a turnout game. When you believe in, in your electorate in that way, that truly speaks to the value that you have in diversity because you believe that the people do have a vested interest in the progression of their own lives. You just have to give them a reason to understand why these policies are so important. And, and a part of that campaign was an education campaign too. So uh, Georgia, we don't, don't have a, um, we have a, of course our, our constituents, our, our voters are smart folks, but there are parts of the, the voting system of, of policies that some of our constituents just aren't privy to that we haven't, that we haven't talked about. And so we included our voters in all of that work that we did because as much of a turnout game as it was, an education game. Like we, we had to, to share with folks, how do you actually vote? Do you vote? Because some of these are infrequent voters. Some of these folks are, are young voters. Some of them, you know, may not know that you, you have to vote at your precinct if you're not voting during the early vote period. So if you're voting in your county, you can, but not necessarily at your precinct on election day. And so those are the types of things that we had to make sure that our voters knew um, by and strengthening their understanding of what the voting system is like, because we aren't protected by uh, the Voting Rights Act anymore, or at least these southern states aren't anymore. So that, I think, is you know the power. And, and then be able to for the Democratic Party to be able to understand that there is actual real power here in the southern region of the country. We've got more African-Americans, more Latinx folks, um, more diverse people that are moving down who are residing in the South or who, who have moved back down to the South, either from migrating back up North um, or coming from different parts of the country. And so this is a, a excellent place to, you know, build progressive policy and infrastructure to, um, to develop um, skill set to, to help folks understand that. And a lot of majority minority communities are in, in our areas as well. So, um, and, and we knew that just from all of the work that we had done across the state. There must have been tremendous disappointment and anger with the result, both because of the excitement, enthusiasm, and because of the machinations on the other side to, to keep people off the rolls and cheat. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be blunt about it. Um, right. How did you experience that? Obviously, I think you're you're angry. Um, I, I know I was. Um, you feel robbed of an opportunity to really show the voters how well you are going to govern this state, how much you potentially lost by them moving the goalposts. And um, they had moved the goalposts so many times during during that campaign, and we even see it now with this voting rights legislation that is being uh, dropped in in the House. Um, because, you know, you make the rules, but if the rules don't, you know, don't benefit or work out in your favor, then you, you want to change them. And so we now in Georgia always have to pivot. I mean, we've got to be light on our toes at this point, like uh, like Ali, like we, we have to be able to to stick and move and, and, and figure out, you know, how are we going to make sure that our people know, you know, what is happening on the state level. And it, how it do is, you overcome the new hurdles? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I never call it a loss <laughs> because it isn't. That theft that happened only energized the base more. And so what they thought they were doing, which is fine, 
you, obviously you have a different conversation if you're speaking to Leader Abrams and <laughs> she's uh, way more angry than I'm, I'm sure. But I think understanding that you build a fire under folks when you see that level of dishonesty it's like playing a game of spades and, and you're and you're watching the other your the other folks at the table just completely just not play by the rules. And so that makes you very angry, not only as as a staff person, as someone who cares about the candidate very deeply as the candidate, but also as the people. This is why we know we had another bite at the apple after the election. Um, but particularly this past election, we had another bite at the apple to, to let folks know that we are not playing around here in this state. We will flip the state over to becoming blue because we are just tired. We are tired. We are tired. And even though we didn't have a Kemp on the ballot in 2020, we had another uh, crazy Republican on the ballot. And so it, we had just had enough in the state. And so I think what you started to see from from our constituents, from our voters is they really wanted to speak up and they wanted to use their vote as their voice. And so that's that's what they did. It was certainly something that creates a, a fire in you that makes you very, very angry, something that you don't forget, but you use that to fuel your future work, that you will not allow this to happen again. And in all the ways that we had in our power to be able to prevent it, there's no way we could have seen some of that stuff coming. As much as we did, and I think Leader Abrams and with her group, Fair Fight, and all of the fantastic work that they've done, along with a number of other groups who are on the ground doing some amazing work, you've seen kind of the pinnacle of where they'll go. And, and that sets the standard for how you should show up as an organization, as a person in the movement, and who's part of the fight for fair access for democracy. High stakes. And, High stakes. And it was extremely close to Georgia being the reason we had a Biden win and the reason that we won the Senate. We, you know, it was astounding to think about the work of people like you making a difference on the national level that's playing out across so many policy areas and so many appointments and so much in the direction of the whole world right now, right? Tell me a little bit about what you've been up to. You you mentioned America Votes, you mentioned Blue Institute. How have you been occupying yourself in the last year or two? Yeah, yeah. So professionally, my full-time work, I work as the deputy state director for America Votes Georgia. So we are the C4 table for, um, for the state. And so we are actually one of the newest uh, states in the America Votes uh, network. And so we are the progressive convener of a number of C4 organizations who cover a diverse array of issues and, and populations. You know, we had a hand in the IE side on ensuring that we were uh, supportive of, um, of getting our folks out to, to vote during this past election cycle. And, and we did a lot of work behind the scenes. As a personal passion of mine is, um, is Blue Institute. And so we, uh, along with my colleague, Jenny Castillo, who ha- has also worked with Leader Abrams since 2011, um, we work to change what the face of the political power structure behind the scenes looks like, too. So in our state, and what's interesting, I've, I've had a number of conversations even with some staff folks, is I haven't worked in a lot of white institutions. <laughs> My former boss was a, was a Black man uh, before I started working on the mayor's race, where my boss was a Black woman. 
And then she became the minority leader and, and she was also my boss. And then, you know, moving into the, the coordinated side, um, you know, Lauren, of course, was the campaign, Lauren Wargo was the campaign manager, uh, but still a very diverse staff structure. And I think the way that we engage those um, in those spaces is just very different. And so I think I've I've had the blessing of being able to have full autonomy in the way that I, I needed to engage people. And so with um, even with Blue Institute, you know, we we organize and, and train young people in a way that helps them understand and further develop their skill sets in the progressive space through a way that they can actually understand it. And so. Um, if that's through looking through your training from the lens of a person of color and and um, how do you approach your work as you're developing your plans? How do you read data through the lens of a, of a person of color? And particularly like if you are looking at data trends, maybe you as, as, as a black or brown person can actually see the reason why your constituency is doing this based on based on X. In 2021, now we are focusing on like the professional development of our of our young people and 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 helping them to understand that you do not need to have a political science degree. You do not need to, um, you know, be a former elected official or hold all of these advanced degrees, which are great. Um, but sometimes your level of expertise is really all you may need if you marry that with skill sets and passion to get to where your, your next kind of job is going to be in this progressive um, electoral or organizational space. So. That's what I've been up to, um, you know, making sure that uh, that we are training uh, young folks of color across the South and Southwest. And so we'll be uh, we, we typically train in smaller areas and also in the legislature. So um, right now in my full time work, I um, I help you know manage what our legislative uh, work is with our partners and how do we help them help support all of their work. And so whether it's the 40 plus um, anti-voting rights le- pieces of legislation that were dropped in the state house um, or the anti-trans uh, sports bill that was dropped or um, you name it, the, the Republicans are doing it. <laughs> uh, I, I can hear it in your, yes, it, it is sad, but um, you it's know, exhausting is what it, it is. is. It is. It's very it's exhausting. frustrating. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's wrong. It's wrong. It is. And it's, t- you're tired of it and you're tired of, of, do you think there's, um, they're going to be able to tilt the playing field far enough to hold the governorship again? I don't know, Nathaniel. I really don't. I think they are doing everything in their power. It's like a, um, a Hail Mary at this point. <laughs> You're doing everything that you can. Um, You're to... cl- clinging to the top of the yes. wall, you know? Yes, yes, and they're exactly. <laughs> and they're kicking. I mean, and we saw it with, with what happened on January 6th. I mean, it's it's all across the board. Like the shift is coming um, and it's here actually. Um, and, and because it's not working out in your favor, doesn't mean that, you know, you can, you can change the lines or, or, or ruin the institutions and, exactly. the, and, the, and the best principles. Of, exactly. Of I mean, you're, you're literally ruining the institutions of democracy <laughs> because you don't want to lose to some degree. It's, it's fun to watch, but it's also very painful and it's a little scary because, You'll do anything to make sure that, you know, that you remain on top. But if we are able to work across the aisle and and really work together on good pieces of legislation that could help all people, I mean, if we're talking about voting rights, 
This isn't just access for Democrats to vote. This isn't just access for black and brown folks to vote and folks who are considered to be on the margins, but for conservatives too, for Republicans. I mean, they too exercise their ability to vote. And so by removing the opportunity because it is more advantageous or considered to be more advantageous for one side, you remove it for the whole. And so this that's really the part that I don't understand is how do you just change the rules for the whole <laughs> that, that affects the whole for a, a, a portion of, of the population? It, it's, it's really, um, it's, it's a different type of perspective, but I think it's, if I were to, to think about it in, in, the, in a way of, of, of losing power, you know, I, I guess I would do everything that I could to, to maintain it, I guess. But, well, I don't know. Some of some people are more principled about the way sure, they go they about are. that. If, if they should I be. mean, like you could, there's no reason that you can't try to be more persuasive or better at governing or, yes. you know, like, or try to help people more rather than try to cheat to do it. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. Where do you want to take your career going forward? Are you happy doing what you're doing for the foreseeable future? Are you ambitious for a different role? Do you want to run for office? What What are you thinking? I don't know if I want to run for office. I do. However, I want to see a shift in what happens in the South. And I think that that is going to happen hopefully in the next 10 years. I mean, it looks like Texas is moving. I think about certainly Texas, North Carolina. North Carolina. Yeah. I think about yeah. Mississippi. Um, Mississippi the, has an awful lot of African American well, people. Yes, and how do you organize those folks? Because I think about the 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 road to victory, right? Like it it was a long one. It was ten years, and 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 actually started a lot with the work that Leader Abrams and and what we did in in the House Caucus, and then with the other groups who have been doing all, all a lot of that work over these past ten years. But coming up with a true plan for what that's going to look like. How do the uh, nonprofit organizations get together? How do the five hundred one c four organizations get together? How are you developing a plan for your leadership um, within those state houses? And what does that staff structure looking um, look like? And so I've been thinking a lot about, particularly in, in those legislatures, because that's that's where I came from. And a lot of the success comes from having an anchor staff who does that work year round, because this isn't just electoral work. And you have a part time legislature when you have folks who have families who are who have jobs who have to get back to work to make a living. Sometimes it's it's a big expectation to expect for them to do that work all year round when when we should probably have in place structures for for this work to continue the entire year. And that's not something that is happening in a number of these states where we do have um, these these wins that are just upon the horizon. Um, we, we, we need to figure out ways that we can invest in these states early that we can give them the staff structures that they need to be able to be successful and that we can start making these small wins because the small wins equal up to the big wins. I mean, we've got redistricting coming up now. So um, how are we going to hold, you know, transparency account, like hold the, the majorities accountable for what does a transparent redistricting process look like? And, you know, um, Leader Abrams talks a lot about um, uh politicians and elected officials, you know, being like teenagers and they're affected by money and, um, and peer pressure. And so how do we make sure that, uh, that we are putting the pressure on our elected officials who hold such powerful positions in redrawing the lines in all levels of, of our government 
and also holding the line for our voters as well, that, that our constituents know exactly what is happening on the ground level. And so it, this is really, truly, I think at this point, um, an education piece, there has to be a campaign around the work that needs to be done. And, um, and how do we make sure that uh, folks are as well informed about not only the, the voting process, but the redistricting process. I mean, these are constructs that they are uh, difficult to understand, but there is a way for us to break that information down and, and to be able to share it and, and in, in a way that folks want to hear it and from people that they may need to hear it from. So it takes influencers, it takes celebrities, it takes door knocking, it takes a true campaign around these issues to make sure that we are holding the line, that we're holding them, ac- them accountable and that we can move toward progress in the future. The anger and frustration that Democrats felt about the loss in 2018, which you kind of tapped as you as you talked about it, it, it's possible that the other side, sort of fed by the lies of Trump, is going to be feeling that after losing in 2020. Do you feel in your state like the Republicans feel wronged and they're going to come back fiercely? What is the sense you get about where they are? Yeah, I don't, I don't foresee them going down without a fight. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. Um, I think because the win was so, it was on such a margin Mm -hmm. and, um, and, not only winning once, but winning twice. You got punched in the right side and you got punched in the left side of your exactly, head. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And you're so you're going to come back up flailing. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that's really what it is. It's just flailing, like no strategy, no right hook, no... Well, they got uh, a strategy, right? They, that's, what these, <laughs> that's what these laws they're trying to pass are. And With everything that happened with, with this voting rights legislation, we don't know what's going to come down the pike. We do know that one of our legislators um, is going to pass an omnibus bill to really attack voting rights. There's no way to stop that because of the majority that they hold. We don't know. We we are trying our best, and I think trying to get our um, you know the other our Democratic allies to to put their foot down or at least come up with some type of agreement or or something. I mean, we know that. Um, these bills are egregious and, you know, they're mad at the fact that there was mobile voting. Um, they're attacking absentee voting. They're attacking third party organizations being able to send out absentee ballots. They're attacking uh, voter ID. And so what we've heard is voter ID is probably the one thing that um, that the secretary of state, that um, that the other Republican leadership are all um that they have all, to some degree, have agreed on. We don't know if all of these bills are going to pass, but we are treating all of them as if they are, that they all have the potential to pass. Because that, that was so painful in Wisconsin, seems to have made a, a very bad impact when they did that there. And, and there are other, other states that are following suit now. So we, we've dropped all of this bad legislation here and also we're, we're not protected under the Voting Rights Act any longer. And so, you know, we need to get HR one back. You know, we, we have to be able to push that. So yeah, there's no preclearance anymore. The, the justice department can't stand in their way. Yep. It's going to be interesting to watch the, because the state will also change during the next two years and probably yeah. demographically in our direction. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We believe so. So, uh, Ashley, it's it's really great to talk to you. Is there a question that I didn't ask that you'd like to answer? No, I think you covered it. I mean, there's so much work that's happening here in the state. 
I think what we see happening in Georgia is potential for what can happen in other Southern states. And so what I hope is for those who are listening, who want to better understand what happened here in Georgia and and how to possibly um, move the needle a little more forward in your state, um, that it just takes true coordination in the most compliant way possible. Uh, so, you know, making sure that you have lawyers that are um, that are a part of every conversation, but also making sure that um, that there is um, coordination amongst your nonprofits, that there is leadership. And I think that there's a true plan for how we're going to, to progress as as a coalition of southern states. I um, am very excited to, to know and excited to, to really think about like what's going to happen in some of these other states and, and actually just seeing it firsthand as a young person and now really, you know, continuing to develop in my career. It's hard work, but it's not work that can't be done. It just takes it takes a plan. I remember, you know, traveling a- across different states with Leader Abrams and and she had her iPad and she literally walked through with some folks who had a vested interest and didn't know why they needed to care about Georgia at all. But, you know, she could talk about what our value statement was. She could talk about, you know, how many seats we were going to pick up. And so I, I urge our Democratic leaders in the state house, in the Senate, and, and in those legislatures in the South and the Southwest to to think about what those plans are, how how many seats are we going to pick up, and how are we going to do it? Because it start it does start in the state house, um, and, and it's a trickle down effect. And so, if we can actually make the change there and develop, you know, great platforms and programs, and what does your year round structure look like? Then I think we can do a lot of really good work. There's an article today by Stacey Abrams and Lauren Growargo about how to turn your red state blue. I don't know if you've read it, but it's right along those lines. It's a, it may take 10 years, but do it anyway. Do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we can see that happening. Thanks so much for taking the time. Anything else you want to say? No, no. Thank you for having me, Nathaniel. This, this was great. It was great. That was Ashley Robinson. Ashley is at theblue.institute. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.